Okay, well, welcome to our study in Eternal Rewards, and we're up to number study number 11. And uh, this one we're looking at the abundant, abundant entrance into the kingdom. Abundant entrance to the kingdom. And uh, we're going to base the whole study out of a passage of Scripture in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through to 17. So I'll read the Scripture out. It's actually quite worthwhile hearing the Scripture. Then we'll come back and refer to all the things that are in it. So 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, we'll pick it up at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we've been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance or patience, to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. And if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble or fall. And so an, abundant, an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So for this reason, I'll not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I'll be careful to ensure you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So in other words, uh, Peter's at a stage in his life where he knows God has shown to him that uh, very shortly he will die. So when you know you're about to die, then what you're saying and what you're sharing are very important things. And uh, notice there, he's uh, sharing with the, uh, with the church. Uh, he's reminding them of something he'd already taught them. So we don't have the record of what he taught. But he said, uh, I think it's right as long as I'm in this tent, meaning while I'm alive, I will stir you up. I'll stir up your spirit. I'll stir up your passion. I'll stir up your, your uh, zeal for God by reminding you of these things. So what we're going to study are the things that he's wanting to remind them of. And uh, he's also, he says, I'll make sure or I'll be careful to ensure you have a reminder of these things after my decease. So this is why he's written the letter. He wants us to remember what he's been sharing. In other words, it's very, very important. He's writing it so it won't be uh, lost at all. And uh, so like all of these passages, we need some context for it. And uh, so that's what we want to have a look at is we want to look just first of all, by way of an introduction to this whole teaching again. And although we go over things a little bit each time, it helps just to reestablish them in our thinking. So um, we're going to look firstly just at uh, an introduction to this. And then secondly, we're going to look then through the passage at its context and then how it applies to us. So you remember we've looked and studied in eternal rewards. We've been looking at the whole concept of God's eternal purpose and uh, God's eternal purpose, something he planned long before the earth was created. And one part of it includes having uh, sons, uh, one part of it includes 
uh, giving preeminence to Jesus Christ, uh, that Christ will be everywhere and everything admired and honored and understood to who he is, and that he will have sons and daughters in his express image who will work with him in sharing his work in governing and establishing the kingdom in the earth. And uh, it's very clear in Romans 8, 29, that uh, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So God's plan is to, uh, and it was predestined. In other words, the plan is what was planned ahead, uh, predestined. We choose whether we're part of the plan. So predestined doesn't mean you've got no will or power to choose. You still choose, but God has a destiny and he wants us to cooperate and flow with him into that destiny. And uh, so the word conform means to be fashioned jointly or to become like him through the, basically through the same process. It's a process of experiences, of revelation, and we'll go exactly what's involved in it and how God works to change us. So every child that's born in the kingdom of God, uh, God takes you into a process of growth with the purpose of changing you. But if you don't understand the process, then you just react and fight and get disappointed. You say, oh, God didn't come through for me. This happened, that happened. And many Christians fall over and fail because they just don't get what God is trying to do and how he goes about doing it and then what our part is. So what we want to do is open up here in this passage again, what God is trying to do and then what our part is in it. And so um, God is able to take every circumstance of life so we think things are a bit random, we have bad things happen, some disappointing things happen to we. But, but it says in Romans 8, 28, uh, that he is able to use every circumstance in, that we walk through, God can use it to get us to where he wants us to get. So no matter what you've been through, doesn't matter what pain, what, what issue, uh, if we're responding to his call, then every situation in life, when God is allowed into it, and we lean into him in faith, he can use it to grow our character and make us more Christ-like. So in doing that, we've got to learn to stop reacting to problems. And when problems come up, issues come up, can be with finances, marriage, with life, with people, with whatever. Uh, the, the thing is, we need to inquire what God is doing and how we respond. And then when you do that, then that situation, although it's painful, negative, difficult, uh, seemingly overwhelming, is used by God to shape your character because you're leaning into him. So that means, man, you can just enjoy your life. Even there's things happening, we just don't react anymore. We just inquire of God how to respond. And uh, Paul, uh, in his writings in Romans 8, makes it clear that the whole of creation is waiting for this process to be fulfilled. In Romans 8, 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are nothing or not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of all creation is eagerly awaiting the revealing or manifestation of the sons of God. So he's saying in this, all of creation is in an expectation because creation understands God has a plan. It takes time to work the plan out and it's all waiting for that moment when the sons of God will be manifested in the coming of Jesus Christ. And uh, that word sons, of course, is mature, fully grown sons. So now you see the, the issue that much of the church remains immature, Christians remain immature, they have no understanding of why personal growth is important. So they just come to church, it's about a meeting, and it's not about a kingdom and a bigger purpose. So with that in mind, now we look into the uh, passage of 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter is ensuring we've got a written record of what he sees as incredibly important. So like all these passages, you always look at the context. What is the scenery, the background, 
uh, the overview that gives uh, meaning to what we're doing. And so in this situation here, this passage here, the context that Jesus is, uh, that Peter is talking is, uh, he's saying, I'm about to die. I want to make sure you never forget this. I've taught it. I'm reminding you, and now I'm going to write it. And this is the letter. So what he's talking, or the context is, uh, very clearly, uh, J- Peter is talking about the end times and about the majestic coming of Christ in glory. And he says that there's an entrance we can have into that kingdom, and that entrance is via the first resurrection, and that we have to prepare. Now you notice that's similar to what we've been hearing everywhere. So all the messages we've done have all had the same theme in it of reward that's in the coming kingdom, reward that goes on for eternity, but the need to respond and prepare for this. And the other ones, we focused in the parable of the virgins, we focused on intimacy and the need for intimacy with Jesus. Uh, In the area of the, uh, uh, when we looked at the parable of the servants, it was about faithful service. And now we're looking at the need for transformation. And we shared with you, sonship involves all those things, intimacy, service, and transformation. This one is really focused on the transformation. That's why I'm making it a whole study. So if we read then, uh, he's descri- he describes the coming of Jesus Christ in verse 16, 17, and 18. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Mm -hmm. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's talking now about things that that Matthew wrote about in Matthew 17, that Mark wrote about in Mark chapter 9, that Luke wrote about in Luke chapter 9. And now here Peter is now Uh, saying here he's giving his own version of this thing. So he's referring to when Jesus took three disciples up onto the mount and as he prayed, he was transfigured. In other words, the glory that was within him began to shine forth like a light shining through a thin veil and all of his body and countenance become changed and shone and radiated glory. He He was transfigured before them And then there was a crowd of glory came over them and God spoke and they saw Moses and Elijah who were talking with him very excited about this whole thing, which is what they had been looking forward to. So Moses uh, is a picture of the, uh, 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 he was the one who introduced the law. Uh, We find Elijah is uh, one that brings the prophetic. And so Moses and Elijah are both there and they're talking with Jesus about what's happening and what's about to happen. And uh, their lives are literally a a prophetic uh, heads up of what was about to come. So they're incredibly excited at that time. And the disciples are completely overwhelmed. They fell down. They didn't understand what was happening. Peter said, well, we should make booths and stay here. Meaning, and in his mind, he's thinking of the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, This must be the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles when the, the blowing of the trump and the Lord returns and the kingdom comes. Uh, He didn't understand actually it wasn't that fulfillment yet. We are the ones living in the hour and it'll happen. So so Peter then is giving an eyewitness testimony of Jesus coming. He saw it personally. He heard everything. And now he's speaking and writing it. And uh, so the context then is what he has experienced is about to come. And then in the writing, he talks about an abundant entrance for us into that kingdom if we qualify. So you notice in all the teaching we've had, Always something's required. We have to qualify. Notice here we read in in three verses. 
And, and, and you'll notice each of these verses makes it very clear that the promise is conditional. For so, in, verse 11, so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, you notice the conditions if. If these things are yours and abound, if you do these things, you'll never stumble. So very clearly he puts conditions on it. So he says the con there's a condition placed on being fruitful and there's conditions placed on abundant entrance to the kingdom and the two are the same. So when he says uh, if these things are yours and abound, if you do these things, you'll never stumble. He's saying basically we have to do some things about our life we have to work with God in the transformation process or we will not be unprepared. And so when we enter the coming kingdom, we enter by qualifying for, by entering through the first resurrection and then that's our high calling and our hope. So seeing that that's the context, now we'll go into it. Firstly, uh, we want to talk about the need for intentional personal growth, meaning transformation. So we shared before many Christians remain uh, very, very immature, but there are many, many ways the necessity for growth is, is pictured in the Bible and there's descriptions of where we need to grow. We need to grow in grace. That's the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of God. That's revelation of Him. We need to grow by the Word of God. So he says in Peter, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, he says, uh, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. So he, everywhere it's talking about growth. So notice here he says in, uh, in verse, uh, going up into the passage 2 Peter 1, he says there to, in, in verse, uh, he says there in verse, uh, where is it, 4 is it? Uh, he says verse 5, verse 5 he says, add to your faith, add to your faith. Verse 5, add to your faith. So add means you've got to build on something that's been established. So he's already stated earlier on that we have got faith in our hearts because we've trusted Christ. So the foundation of our walk with the Lord, we receive Jesus, He becomes our Savior, we have saving faith, we're in the, we've, we've become um, uh, introduced to His kingdom, and uh, so we have a foundation of relationship with Christ. So he's talking and writing to people who he assumes already have faith. Now this is add to your faith, so he's assuming that faith is already there. And our saving faith, we can't do anything to add to what Christ has done. You know, we know in Ephesians 2.8, by grace are you saved through faith, no work. So our faith is a gift to us. It's our response to what Jesus did. But now he's saying God doesn't want you to stop there. You want to, he wants you to add to your faith or build on the foundation. So he said the foundation of your life is a revelation of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of Christ comes into us and, 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 uh, and becomes, we become joined to him. Now we need to grow. So he says, uh, don't stop there. Build on the foundation. You must add to your faith. So the Bible describes our life like a building, like a body that must grow up and go from childhood through to young man, through to fatherhood. Uh, or it's like a building that you've got a foundation laid and now you've got to build on the building. And uh, so we can't stop at the fact that we're <laughs> saved and we belong to God. We're on a journey to maturity. And the Bible makes it clear that without maturity, we can't enter all that God has for us. Galatians 4 verse 1, it says, When a child or the heir is just a child, he's no different to a servant. He can't have his inheritance. You've got to grow up. And we see that naturally. If you want to receive inheritance, you've got to be old enough to handle it. 
So without maturity, we can't enter God's inheritance. So we must embrace not just that, that Jesus wants to save us, but we need to embrace God's purpose to mature us and grow us till we come like Christ. And uh, we understand uh, that Jesus is the express image of what God is like. Hebrews 1.3, we understand he's the firstborn of many. So those scriptures tell us God's plan is not just to have Jesus in glory, but to have many, many uh, uh, sons and daughters exactly like him in their character and their nature. And that's not accidental. We have to commit to God's process of transformation and building character. And Jesus is the model. So this is what we would call our heart journey. Now, he doesn't talk about the heart there. That's talked about other places. But the heart journey is our personal journey. It's something everyone has to take. And it's a journey of freedom and a journey of formation. Freedom, because we've got wounds, we've got uh, attachments, we have addictions. We've got old reactions that we make. We've got immaturity. We've got areas of bondages. And they all show up in our relationships. So if they weren't shown before, they'll show when you get married. And they'll show again when you have children. They show up through life. So the wounds of our heart have to be healed. The bondages in our heart need to be broken. So our journey with the Lord is a journey, uh, firstly, of letting God bring freedom, progressive freedom in our life. And secondly, it's one of formation, the formation of the heart and character of Christ in our lives. So Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke on me and learn from me, for I am gentle, or I'm meek and lowly in heart, meek and humble in heart. So clearly, Jesus wants us to learn the value of the heart quality of meekness and the heart quality of humility. The quality of meekness means my strength is under control, under management. My passions, my energy, my life is yielded and surrendered to God so I don't react to life's adversities. Uh, I'm not uh, imposing my power and forcing my will and way. Humility means I adopt a servant attitude. And when we take on the, the qualities and grow the qualities of meekness and humility, we become more and more like Christ. When we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. When we're meek, God causes us to inherit. In other words, we receive things we never work for. We have influence with people. So he tells us then, the second thing is, he tells us be diligent, uh, diligent to uh, make your call and election sure. Here it is in verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Now notice he says, if you do these things, that word do these things means constantly practice the list he's just given us. So we'll go to the list in detail in a moment, but he's saying it requires diligence. You've got to constantly work on these areas. You're constantly practicing, putting into practice. And he's saying that you need to be diligent to make your calling sure. So if someone says, you've got to really be diligent to make this thing happen, that implies if you're not diligent, it won't happen. So he's saying you have a high calling. You have precious promises from God. We've got wonderful things he's prepared. We must be diligent. So the promises of what God makes available, diligence is our part. And you can either be diligent or you can be lazy. And uh, this is the difference between many Christians. Some are very diligent in their prayer life, diligent in reading the Word, diligent in following what God's showing them. Others are neglectful. They come and turn up on Sunday. It's casual what they have and they never take notes. They never respond to anything that's taught. For them, it's just coming to church great atmosphere, feel encouraged, strengthened, reminded God loves them, and inspired by a message. It's not a, a lifestyle of intentional building. 
when you've got a lifestyle of intentional building, you want to be in a learning process constantly. And uh, so he says we need to make our, our calling sure, implying, and as we've seen in other messages, it's not sure unless you make it sure. And even Paul wasn't sure till the very end. So, <laughs> so be diligent. What does it mean to be diligent? Diligent. I love diligence. I've won, I've won the prize for diligence three times. <laughs> yeah. Once in primary school, once in secondary school, once in university. And uh, diligence will get you through. It's not the gifting you have, it's the diligence you show that makes all the difference. So diligence means to make every effort to give care and attention to something, making sure you do what's necessary. Another meaning of d d diligence means maintain the focus and an ongoing sustained effort. Diligence. Keep your focus, sustain the effort. So that's a great definition, isn't it? To be diligent. Keep your focus. This is where I'm going. Sustain the effort. So you keep at it. You persevere at it. And uh, so diligence is the difference between just dreaming about something and actually having it happen. So we have many people are dreamers, but they're not diligent, applying themselves intentionally to grow. And uh, so he says we're to imply diligence to make our calling sure. And he mentions it twice. So when someone's mentioned twice, they're trying to get your attention. It's important. You mentioned three times, even more important. It's like, wow. So verse 5, give diligence to build on your faith the Christ qualities. Verse 10, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. So he connects the two, building the qualities into your life with making your call and election sure. Notice it's give all diligence, be even more diligent. So he's emphasizing Laziness is not acceptable. You're not getting anywhere if you're lazy. You really got to apply yourself to this. And uh, making your calling election sure, obviously, is connected to building the character qualities of Christ in your life. And uh, it's worth a study to look through the book of Proverbs and other places in the Bible on the meaning of diligence and the promises of diligence and the meaning of slothfulness and the, 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 the things stated concerning slothfulness. So in Proverbs 12, 24, for example, it says, the hand of the diligent will rule. In other words, you want to be in charge, be diligent or whatever you're doing. The person who's diligent will end up in charge, but the lazy man will be put out to forced labor. So you'll find these contrasts in the book of Proverbs of diligent and lazy. In the Hebrews chapter 6, he tells us, be not slothful, but rather be followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So again, diligence is, is, is a God quality. God is diligent. He wants us to be diligent. So whatever you do, do it diligently. Sustain your focus on what you're doing. Keep persevering and doing it. You will get there. And I've discovered in the walk with Christ that diligence in following the Lord and seeking the Lord and doing what he wants you to do in spite of everything else brings you through. And uh, so every believer needs to grow. Every Christian needs to grow. And it's not automatic. It needs to be intentional. So people think if I just turn up, something's going to happen. No, um, our growth needs to be intentional. So studying the Word is an intentional effort. Prayer is an intentional effort. Working on your personal life is an intentional effort. Going to a seminar to get healing is an intentional effort. And all of these things require intentional effort. And intentional means... It's conscious, deliberate, and you're doing it on purpose. You've got something in mind. So when we understand our calling, we then our response is to be diligent. 
very diligent. And uh, as we're diligent, uh, there are great and precious promises that causes us to become transformed and changed and enter into the kingdom magnificently. So we can have an abundant entrance to the kingdom. We can barely scrape in. I think it's better to have an abundance. So then he talks about uh, the consequences of not growing. So he, having given diligence to grow and to change, he then talks about the characteristics of not growing and then the seven qualities that we are to diligently work on. So let's have a look then at the characteristics of Christians that are not growing. And you probably all know some of them. And uh, essentially there's a lack of life and freshness around them. They, they become stale and old and religious because they're, they're not growing. So, so uh, notice here in um, 2 Peter 1 verse 8, If all these things are yours and abound, they will make sure you're neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord. But if you lack these things, you're short-sighted even to blindness, you've forgotten you're cleansed from your old sins. So if we don't keep growing, we stagnate. Stagnant water is not life-giving water. We stagnate. How do we stagnate? There's no freshness in your walk with God, no fresh insights, no fresh learning experiences, no fresh growing experiences. And people like that really become quite shut down and passive. Um, when people are not growing, they draw on their gifts, uh, their talents, instead of a relationship. And they draw on past experience instead of what God is currently speaking to them. So um, if we... If we, if we don't persevere in development and growing, then it results in the following things, unfruitfulness, uh, blindness, short-sightedness, forgetfulness. So we're going to, I'm going to go through the list of the five things that characterize people who are not growing, or another way, the consequences of not growing. Right? So the consequences of not growing. Number one, barren. It just says they'll be barren. And uh, it's kind of, the, the word literally means without labor. It, or another way of putting it, they're not serving, they're not productive, they're spiritually unemployed, they live off the service and faith of others. Now think of the Christians you know like that. Man, they're never available to serve, they're not passionate for good works, they're not, uh, it says in Titus, that he has he, he's redeemed us to himself, a people that'll be zealous for good works. So where's the zeal, where's the passion? It shows they're negligent in their walk with God, they're not in a grow mode because our serving the Lord catalyzes the growing because it puts you into difficult situations which force your growth. You can't actually just grow just by reading the Bible. You've got to be engaged. So one of the characteristics of people not growing is they're barren, without labor. They're spiritually unemployed. They live off the faith and service of others. The second thing is, is that people are not growing is they're unfruitful. Uh, from agriculture, most of the new fruit comes on the new growth. And uh, so unfruitful means you're not producing the fruit you're supposed to produce. It means you lack the fruit of the Spirit. You lack, uh, uh, the, you're not involved actively in advancing the kingdom. You're not having a positive influence. And you think of the number of Christians, many people we know like that. And they're not aware that they're disqualifying themselves from the first resurrection. They're disqualifying themselves from their calling. They're disqualifying themselves from being part of the great coming age with Christ. The third thing, is blind, they're wretched and blind. And that word blind is a Greek word tuflos, meaning to be opaque. It means literally to surround you with smoke. Probably if you ever looked at anyone in a car who's been vaping, you know, the whole, ha the whole car gets filled with that vape smoke. Mm. 
or the whole, everything around them gets covered with smoke. He says, like that. That's the picture he's saying. He's saying you're blind. He's saying you're enveloped with smoke. It also means to be puffed up with pride or conceited or rendered foolish. And uh, it's a demonic activity. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, Satan has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. So, so when we're not growing, our faith isn't growing, we're not leaning into God, then what happens is we become very self-centered, self-oriented, and of course that brings the next thing, we become short-sighted, can't see afar off. In other words, for, if you can't see afar off, like I've got short-sightedness, so I can't, it's, everything afar off is blurry, so therefore it creates a bit of problems going forward. In fact, to the point I can't drive unless I've got the glasses on to correct the vision. So, to, so it says there, can't see afar off means that you're focused on what's near to you, and you don't see further down where it's all going and what it all counts for. So it refers to a life that's living in the moment rather than living with eternity in mind. Short-sighted. You're not seeing ahead. One day you'll stand before the Lord. One day you'll give account for your life, your decisions, your choices, your values, what you've done. You're not thinking ahead. You just are just not seeing it. It's like it's out of your view all the time. Therefore, you're not living with that in mind. And then he says, uh, and, and he says, you've got a bad memory. You've forgotten what God has done and why he's done it. And when it says to forget God, what it really means is to forget God by not keeping his commandments. So in Deuteronomy 8, 11, beware you don't forget the Lord by not keeping his commandments. And uh, in 1 John 2, 4, the one who says, I know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God matures in him, and this is how we know we're in him. So very clearly, uh, the consequences of failing to grow is we just forget what God saved us from, we forget why we're saved, and then we forget to do the things he wants us to do. We start to just live for ourselves. And that's the condition of so many in the church. It's quite heartbreaking, really. So quite bad thing, isn't it? blind, half blind, short-sighted, bad memory, unfruitful, barren, you know, spiritually unemployed. These are bad things, aren't they? But this is all the consequence of not being committed to personal growth. And you look at the people you have the difficulties with, all of these things are in them. You just start, you'll start to notice it. They won't do things. They're not engaged. They're not growing. They're not sharing anything fresh from God, not sharing anything fresh from the Word. They're not thinking about eternity. They're not even thinking past next week. They're thinking about my, this, my marriage, my children, my money, whatever. Their whole life is preoccupied with what's in front of them. And, uh, and what's in front of us can change. It can be good. It can be really bad. But having a long-term vision enables us to walk through the goods and the bad, the highs and the lows, because we are looking for something that's eternal. We saw in, uh, in, he, in, I think it was in Hebrews, what, uh, Peter, it says, he says, this, this hope that we have ahead anchors your soul, stops you being tossed around in the storms. Okay, so then he now talks about the qualities. Add some things to you. So be very diligent and, and, and add these things into your life. So the questions that we want to look at then are, well, what does he want us to add? How do we add it? That would be good things to look. What is he saying you need to add? Okay, so here's seven qualities. Interesting, use the number seven. Previously, he talked about seven things of people who are in, in, the, in the same book. He talks about seven things of people who are walking away from God. But now he talks about seven things we need to add in. So let's have a look what the seven things are. And uh, here they are. 
We'll go through them and I'll just list, explain each one so you understand what they are. So it says, add to your faith virtue. So what is virtue? It means literally valor, courage, uh, excellence, purity, doing what's honorable. So we could say it like this. Virtue means do the right thing. Do what you know God wants you to do. So virtue, add to your faith, doing the right thing. So what it means, virtue means something like this. Here's a better definition of it. It means spiritual courage in a hostile world. Being able to stand up for what's right in the face of reactions. How about that? That's virtue. You can see how virtue is a good word. It, it, just, it describes manliness, courage, on, being a man of honor, woman of honor. You have the courage to stand up among people who are hostile to your way of life and you stand up for what's right. And uh, virtue then means doing what's right in God's eyes, not what people think or what's best for me. And so an example of a man of virtue is David. So even though he had some things that were wrong, he stood up courageously for what was right. And if you look at the apostles, they all died for their faith. They were men of virtue. They had courage to stand up and do what's right. You see Peter standing up and doing what's right. They tried The authorities tried to shut him down from preaching the gospel in Acts 4. And he said... God has commanded us to do this thing. And so whatever you think, you're allowed to think that, but we will do what God told us to do. And so that's courage. It's doing the right thing. And you think of that, you always have opportunities in your life to choose to do the right thing, to do what God wants done. Now, maybe to speak up when no one else is speaking up. Maybe to stand by someone who's having a hard time. It may be to not lie when, you, when you're tempted to. It may be to be honest when you're tempted or others are saying don't be honest. There's lots of ways that virtue can be developed. The second one he said then is add to virtue, add to doing right is knowledge. In other words, get understanding. And the word knowledge there is the word uh, understanding that's gained by learning, intentional learning and experience. So we need to keep growing in our spiritual knowledge and understanding. And uh, Solomon is an example of a man who, grew, who developed great knowledge and great understanding. But he also sought it. He, he asked God for it. So the way we get knowledge, it's what is it? It's the knowledge of God. It's an understanding of how life works. So we need to persevere. And, 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 and Solomon wrote like this in Proverbs 2, in the first few verses. He said, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. If you cry out for discernment and lift your voice for understanding, if you seek for her like silver and search for her like treasures, hidden treasures, you will understand the fear of the Lord. You'll find the knowledge of God because the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So Solomon, the wisest man in the world, understood that you can have natural knowledge by study, but there is spiritual knowledge and understanding of, of how life really works that only God can give. And so he excelled in that. When God said to him, you can have whatever you want, he said, this is what I want. I want a hearing heart uh, that understands. And God gave him wisdom. God was very pleased. And with it, God gave him everything else as well. So we need to pursue knowledge. That means being diligent and studying the Word of God, being diligent and listening to people that have got revelation and insight. It's applying yourself to understand how the realm of the Spirit, how God's kingdom works. 
And as you understand it, then of course you can make great decisions. Your life starts to flourish because you understand, oh, there's sowing and reaping. Everything works on sowing and reaping. So if you understand, say for example, the principle of sowing and reaping, you know, yeah, I may do some things today and look like I'll get away with it, but I'm, I'm gonna reap the consequence of those bad decisions. I may pray and do some things today that don't look like I'm getting anywhere, but I will reap the benefits of all of that eventually. So by understanding the law of sowing and reaping in relationship to spiritual things, then I'm able to go forward and grow. I do things because I know what's going to happen in the future. And then of course, then your life becomes where you're continually reaping and you're continually sowing, it's your whole life. And so, because you understand that's how God works. And uh, most people don't get how God works. They, they like what he does, but don't know how he works. So he works through the principle one way, he works is through the principle of sowing. You sow, 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 and then gradually after a time, you start to reap, 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 and then your life is a flow of sowing and reaping. So, so very important for us to gain understanding of how God works. God works through principles. So you see the principle of serving. You want to be great in the kingdom? Then become a servant. Now that looks counterproductive in the world. People want to be great. They promote themselves. But God says, no, no, that's not. If you want to really want to get here, this is how it works. This is how the kingdom works. This is how it really works. Become the servant and gradually God himself will find the place to lift you up either in this life or in the next. So this third one, he says, add to, uh, add to knowledge or understanding, add temperance. Temperance means literally to control yourself. So temperance means uh, self-control. Uh, it means mastering your feelings and impulses. And of course, you know so many people and they can't do that. They live out of their feelings. So self-control means not just controlling your actions. It means controlling your emotions, your impulses, your thoughts. It means delaying instant gratification. Probably simple way of that, and even in the in the secular world, people know that if you can delay instant gratification, you set yourself up for success. So you know, if I give you I give you five dollars now or a thousand dollars in a month, there's so many people just want the, the the money now. They can't wait, and it's a characteristic of children. They will usually take what will come now rather than wait because they can't see ahead that actually I'll be much better off if I just delay this thing now for the sake of that ahead of me. And uh, so, of course, on the basis of this, people are caught up with impulse buying, they're caught into temptation to sin. All of those things are all usually quite impulsive. And so self-control means I resist impulsive behavior and I maintain a direction where I'm going. Okay? And so there's examples of that, of course. The first thing to see about that, that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So it comes as we yield to the Spirit of God consciously and ask God's help just to overcome that thing rather than just yielding to the impulse. So also it requires emotional intelligence. You've got to be aware of your emotions and what you're feeling and what others are feeling. That helps you manage your choices. So examples of that would be Daniel and Joseph. Joseph developed self-control. He was in a position of privilege. He was in a position where he sought serving the Lord and the pot of his wife tempted him over and over and over ago, she tempted him. He maintained self-control and resisted her, even to the point uh, where he was thrown into jail and falsely accused. So he was a man of virtue and made, did what was right, and he was a man of self-control. So obviously God raised him up and makes him a leader. Many times people focus on God raising Daniel up to be a prime minister, but they don't understand what he built into his life that caused God to be able to lift him up. 
another example of that would be Daniel. And uh, Daniel, remember in Daniel chapter 1, was faced with the uh, pressure to compromise his beliefs and to eat the, the, the wine and eat the food offered to <laughs> idols. And he made a decision and conscious not to follow that and eventually God promotes him as well. And of course, Paul writes it down in 1 Corinthians 9, 25. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. So if you want to be a winner, an athlete, you don't overindulge in anything. So that would work out in our life. We need to control food, control drink, and just control what we do. Put it under management so we don't get caught out of control in any one area of our life. Okay, then he said add to self-control, add patience. Patience. That word means a steadfast endurance, persevering through difficulty. So in other words, it means stay the course. Don't quit. <laughs> don't quit. Just don't quit. So um, perseverance is the ability to bear up and press through when things are against you. So in the Christian life, we experience many different difficulties and opposition and times where nothing's happening. Uh, people upset us and offend us. It's very easy to give up and walk away. And so perseverance means I stick with it because it's a conviction God put me here and I'm going to see it through. So perseverance can have a couple of applications. One is continue doing something when it's hard to do. It also means to be able to wait for someone that you believe will come. So uh, the problem for most Christians is they don't realize that God works through processes and processes take time. So we prefer quick results. Hence people love an altar call or just someone pray for me, fix me up, come and do this for me, that for me. But God actually values process and uh, he uses processes and time to grow us. So when you don't understand that, you can be very up and down and flighty in your Christian walk. Patience also has the meaning of uh, long suffering, just enduring people's difficult circumstances mm -hmm. and difficult people and never giving up on anyone. And again, long-suffering is a fruit of the Spirit as we yield to the Holy Spirit. Uh, so the opposite to that is impatience. Love is patient. Love is long-suffering. So God, is, God perseveres with us with all our little glitches and ups and downs because He loves us and that's His character. So it tells us there in the Bible in a whole number of places, it talks about the reward of patience. Here's one of them in Hebrews 13, 35 and 36. Don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward. You need endurance. After you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And of course, patience is developed in our life through adversity. So that's why it tells us in James uh, chapter 1, count it on joy when you, uh, when you face trials or tribulations or temptations or, or adversity. James 1, I haven't got that in the notes. I forgot to put it in. I deleted it and I had it somewhere else. <laughs> anyway, and then he says, knowing. So he says, you count it all joy when you go through diverse temptations. Knowing, what do you know? Knowing that the trying of your faith works patience. And patience, when it's had its complete work, makes you perfect and mature. So then he's saying then to Christians, he's saying, you need to recognize this, that the testing of your faith when circumstances don't seem good and favorable, when God doesn't seem to be coming through, when there's opposition, when there's difficulty. He says, still stay positive that God is in this all because in doing that, you develop the quality of patience. And when you develop patience, you grow and become mature and complete in everything. So this is a very important um, 
quality to develop in your life, stickability, never quit, keep going. And that's one of the qualities that we've learned over the course of time. If you will just persevere in faith, keeping going, everything around you is temporary and comes to an end. But God continues. So whatever you're going through, it has, a, it has an expiry date on it. You may not know the expiry date, but it does have an expiry, it does end. So you just got to persevere. And if you will persevere with the right attitude, trusting God, then he uses it all for your good. Then add to your faith, um, godly, add, add to uh, patience, godliness. Godliness uh, means literally a uh, fear and respect or reverence for God. It's a reverence and respect and fear of the Lord. It, it, it's a deep awareness that the honor and the glory belong to God and he will call all of us to account. So everyone will have to give account. So when there's godliness in our life, it means a deep respect for God and respect for his authority and therefore a respect for other authorities because all authorities come from God. So godliness always shows up in, a, in the way you live, clean living, and with a respect for authority. So you find someone with a lack of respect for authority, they've got a godliness issue. There's something missing in their life and they can never be great in the kingdom because to be great in the kingdom, I need to be a man under authority. So there's a big difference between a man un, uh, under grace, in other words, he's depending on God to cover all his mistakes, and a man under authority who intentionally submits to God's order and honors those over him. So to operate in the kingdom, we need a fear and respect of God. Then the last two, brotherly kindness. So that one simply would be practice being kind to people. Practice being kind to people. So brotherly kindness basically means love and kindness to the brethren or to fellow Christians. So it manifests itself in our words, the way you speak, how you treat people, and it manifests in acts of generosity and care. So essentially, kindness shows up in how you treat people. And uh, obviously, the best way to build great relationship, be kind to people. You're kind to people, they respond. It's just, it's a winner being kind to people. And, and many people don't deserve you being kind, but we show kindness because that's the fruit of the Spirit. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Kindness comes when you yield to the Spirit when you're provoked, and instead of reacting and showing unkindness, you show kindness to people even when they don't deserve it. So an example of that is uh, Jonathan. He developed kindness towards David, and David himself developed kindness towards Jonathan's family. And when uh, it says in Proverbs 19, verse 22, the, the quality to be desired in men is kindness. I shared that with someone actually two days yesterday. I was just talking um, with a neighbour, and he was asking, you know, is this, is this uh, all this big, you know, tough man thing? Is that godly? I said, no, it isn't. I said, here's the quality God says is great in a man: loving kindness, and uh, other qualities as well. So in Ephesians four, it tells us, verse thirty-two: be kind to one another. So loving kindness, and finally the last one he says to add into your life is love, or and that's a pretty broad word. So it means literally sacrificial service. So love, in this sense, is the God type of love. It's a service and kindness that's got no agenda, no strings attached. So with those notes, I've got stings in there. I don't like stings. <laughs> I don't like strings attached either. <laughs> Funny thing was, we just had one of these yesterday. We had someone come and drop something off to us at the door, left a note wanting us to ring. Actually, this is a trade. They've just left a little gift, and it was just on ex had expired, I think. <laughs> but they, were, they wanted to, they wanted to get a response. It's like 
gifts with agendas. Mm. That's not love. So real love means a desire to do and uh, what's best for others. Causes us to act in the opposite spirit to the world where you want to react, you develop a- action of love. So John's an example of a man who developed great love. And he, he wrote uh, in chapter 4, verse 8, 1 John 4, verse 8, he said, whoever does not love God, does not love, does not know God, for God is love. So the more you get to know God and find an experience he's loving and he's kind and he's generous, then you put on those qualities and, and begin to practice those. And Jesus wrote in Luke 6.35, Love your enemies, do good, lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. An abundant reward, you'll be sons of the Most High God, because that's just what he's like. So, the, so Paul tells us to be imitators of God and walk in love. So you see there are seven qualities. There, of course, are other qualities. So they put seven there because in those seven it encompasses what growing to maturity looks like. Doing the right thing, acting courageously when there's pressure to do otherwise, uh, growing in knowledge and understanding and wisdom, controlling impulsive behavior, mastering yourself, your eating, your drinking, your, your, what you do and where you invest your time and finances and stuff, uh, developing patience, staying the course. No matter what happens, you stick with it and you, you stay on course, stay on target and walk with it. Uh, you develop godliness. You d- develop a deep fear and respect for the Lord. You respect authorities and uh, you're careful to live a good life. Uh, practicing kindness so wherever you go particularly firstly to the church and sometimes the church people are the hard ones to love because they take it for granted and they act in ways which are just uh, uh, disgraceful to say the least dishonoring and unkind and and uh, mean-spirited that would be the best word to describe many Christians are very mean-spirited so they want something but they don't give something they're not they don't invest and uh, then finally, love that we commit, we call for a life of sacrificial service. So, um, so two other areas then I wanted to look, and um, in the case of the limited time, we'll just highlight those. I've got them developed well in the notes. What are the agents that God uses to help us in this? Because God will never ask you to do something without empowering you to do them. So God will always provide what we need. So the first the first is the Holy Spirit is the one who helps you grow these qualities. It's not like trying to do it all in your own strength, trying hard to be a better person. No, it's actually more about building a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And see in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, His divine power has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. So this is the power of God. The Holy Ghost will help you in the journey. So we need to pray in the Spirit. We need to build the connection with the Holy Spirit, ask Him to help us. And when issues come up, surrender or exchange the thing you're struggling with for the godly quality which He will give to you. The second thing that will help us grow is revelation knowledge. He says in verse 3, His divine power has given us all things (laughs) pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. And that word knowledge is the word epigenosis, meaning the knowledge that comes upon you from God. It's revelation that God brings through your relationship and your study. That revelation knowledge is given to people who hunger for God and it brings change in our life. So very, very important. Thirdly, the Word of God. We have to study the Word of God or we never understand God's ways nor even understand how, what to do. So uh, in 2 Peter 1 verse 4, 
by, by, by which we've been given exceeding great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of divine nature. So what it means is our change, we become changed, uh, we become different, we become like Jesus. How do we do that? It comes about when we hold the Word of God in our heart and it causes us to persevere in these other things. So um, very important to understand that the promises of God anchor your soul, keep you going. Uh, a, for, a, a fourth uh, a provision God has made for us is the fivefold ministry gifts. They're given to process, bring us to maturity. So in Ephesians 4, 11 to 14, uh, it tells us the fivefold ministry gifts are given. And part of it is that we would grow to the maturity of Christ, that we'd be no longer children. So fivefold ministry gifts, their teaching, their impartations help you in the journey. That's why the church needs it so badly or it remains immature. And you find many churches that are pastoral, everyone's immature. No maturity, no growth, very little knowledge of God. And then finally, life experiences. Life experiences. God uses life experiences to develop these qualities in you. And there's that scripture in James 1. It counted joy when you fall into various trials because the trying of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work. You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he's talking about difficult experiences, delays, temptations, betrayals, uh, diverse opposition, uh, th times when God seems a long way off, but it works or accomplishes endurance in our heart and life. And uh, that's a key to growing. And then the, finally, we finish up with these things then, the promises that God makes. If these things are yours and abound, here's what it'll mean. It means you'll be fruitful. You'll be fruitful. They make that you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful. So God is looking for fruit in your life, godly character, uh, activity of engaging in his kingdom and serving people. He wants you to be fruitful. Fruitful tree, Jesus came looking for the fruitful tree. So God wants to see fruit in our life, wants to see us grow up, produce something with our life and our gifts. Secondly, stability. If they be make, be, uh, he says, if you be more diligent to make your call and election sure, if you do these things, you'll never stumble. So you want to stay stable in your life, never stumble. That word to stumble means to fall down, to descend from a higher place to a lower place, means to be overcome by fear or grief or demons. It means to lose your authority, to be removed out of your assignment. How about that? So here's his promise. You'll never fall out of your place in God if you put those things into practice consistently. And of course, Israel is the example set before us. They did not grow, they did not change, and then they all fell, no one entered what they were supposed to. It's exactly the same condition. So, and finally, and here's where we get to, 2 Peter 1 verse 11, if you do these things, if they abound in you, you're diligent in them, you work on them, you live them out, then an, an, so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Abundant means huge quantity overflowing with wealth and honor. So notice we've already seen that an abundant interest of the kingdom was associated closely with the second coming of Jesus Christ, with the first resurrection, and so they're all synonymous. Uh, we see then that an abundant interest of the kingdom means I will attain the first resurrection I'll enter into the coming kingdom with glory and honor and stature. That's going to vary from one person to another, but nevertheless, you can choose whether you have an abundant entrance or whether you barely get in and you have nothing that qualifies for reward. So the presence of these qualities in abundance guarantees us an entrance to that coming kingdom.
Some will be more abundant than others. There'll be different degrees of reward. But you and I choose whether we will grow and mature and let Christ be formed in us. And Paul prayed to the, in the Galatians, he said, I travail in prayer until Christ be formed in your life. And so that's our desire, is that in our journey, it's not that we're busy doing for things, but something is happening in what we're becoming. We're becoming more like Jesus. We're becoming more godly, more consistent, more upright, more courageous, more persevering. Uh, we're becoming more loving and more generous and more kind. These qualities are growing and increasing in our life. And, and of course, uh, you've seen how when these things have been worked on in a man's life for a long period of time, the fruit is evident everywhere. So I encourage you with that, that uh, you go through the study, you make it your own study, and you can take those qualities and explore them in the Bible so you understand them more. You can go back and look at diligence and slothfulness. Uh, you've got much to work on there.